Church, our scripture reading from God's Holy Word comes from two different passages this morning, Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5. Ephesians, Genesis 2, chapter, chapter 2, verses 18 through 24, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that's what it's, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to all the birds, to the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Ephesians 5, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he may sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the blood, washing of the water with the word, that we might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands love your wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and, I'm, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, that each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You may be seated. Amen, church. Wow. After a great time of worship like that, I'm almost ready to just go home now. Praise the Lord. Welcome to the first Sunday of 2024. And I've got to tell you, I am excited. I am excited because of what God did last year and his incredible faithfulness. And I am excited for what he's going to do in 2024. Church, let me say this. God is not done. He's not done with his church. He's not done with you. He's not done with the gospel. And whatever happens this coming year, he is in control. Well, today, I'm excited to say we begin a new series. It's going to be a short series, just three weeks long. We'll, we'll meet on this Sunday, next Sunday, and the following Sunday. And then the last Sunday of this month, we'll return to the book of Mark that we've been going through for a year now. But I'm calling this series Marriage, Family, 
and singleness. It shouldn't take a lot of brain power to figure out what we're going to talk about the next several weeks. Marriage, family, and singleness. Now, I've chosen these topics for one because these topics are foundational areas of our lives. They're foundational areas of our lives. You are either married or single. There is no in-between. Even if you're engaged, you're still single. There's no in-between. You're either married or you're single. Until you say, I do, you are single. And so these topics, you might call these identifying markers in our lives. They're foundational to us. And because they're foundational to us, we need to know what the Bible says about these topics. We must know what God says about marriage and about family and about singleness. If we're going to be disciples of Jesus Christ, and that's the mission of our church, to make disciples of Jesus Christ. If we're going to be disciples of Jesus Christ, we must know what the Bible says about these topics. How do I mature as a disciple of Jesus Christ as either a married person or a single person? That's the question I want you to be asking yourself as we go through this series. How do I mature as a disciple in these areas of my life? So wherever you are in the spectrum, you need to ask yourself that question. So that's why I want to do this series. But also, there's a lot of misinformation in our world about these subjects. There's a lot of teaching that the world puts out there as to married people and to single people that is contrary to what the Bible says. And don't think those ideas have not infiltrated the church. They have. The bride of Christ is infected with the ideas of the world. So we need to identify these areas where we have been infected. We need to root them out in order to be a pure congregation, in order to have pure marriages, in order to be pure disciples. So here's what I want to do. I want to take a look at each of these topics. We're talking about marriage this Sunday, and I want to see what, the, what does the Bible have to say with these things, and how can we apply biblical, these biblical principles to our lives. I'll be honest. I could probably preach several sermons on each topic, but I've chosen only to do one, so there's a lot of information packed into these sermons. So how fast at notes are you taking? Good? Now, there's good things here from the Word of God. I want to say two more things before we get started. One, don't check out. Because we're talking about marriage this morning. If you're single, don't check out. Don't think that there's nothing here for you. If you're young, too young to get married, you're not even thinking about marriage, don't think for a moment that there's nothing here for you. Stay engaged because the word of God is always relevant. And the last thing that I want to say, before we get started in our series, the last thing I want to say is this. I don't stand before you as a man who has mastered these things. I stand before you as a flawed, sinful individual who has severely messed up in these areas and fallen time and time again on the grace of God. I don't get my authority to speak on these topics from a flawless resume. I simply share the authority that comes from God's word and God's word alone. And I want you to know that. So with that, let's dive into God's word. 
marriage. I want to answer three questions about marriage this morning. One, what is marriage? Two, why do we marry? And three, how do we do this thing called marriage? What is marriage? Why do we marry? And how do we do this thing called marriage? And as you heard of the scripture reading, I'm going to be using two passages this morning, Genesis, 8, Genesis 2, 18 through 24, and Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. These are not going to be necessarily expositional messages like we're used to hearing where we go down verse by verse and explain. It's more of a topical, but I will be explaining some things as we go along. So first question, what is marriage? Here's your point. Marriage is a covenant created by God between one man and one woman forever. That's your basic, boil it down definition of marriage. Marriage is a covenant created by God between one man and one woman forever. Now you should be asking yourself, where do you get that? I get it from God's word. Let's go back and jump back in to Genesis 2 verse 18. I'm going to read the passage again. Follow along as I read. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon him. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. I hope this is a familiar story to you. It's the creation of woman here and essentially the creation of marriage. And this comes right after God had created the world, the universe, and everything. God put man in the Garden of Eden to keep it. Man had complete freedom. There was one stipulation, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything else was up for grabs. And up until this point, Everything that God had created, God had seen it and said it was good. But then we reach verse 18, and there's a stark contrast. God said it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, I'm going to unpack that verse a little bit later on, but for now, I just want to use that as an introduction to the creation of woman and of marriage. God says it's not good that man is alone. Now, that didn't necessarily mean that Adam was lonely. I mean, after all, he walked with God. It doesn't, doesn't really mean that he was lonely. Rather, it means that there was not another like him. There was not another like him. Of all the inhabitants of the world, of all the inhabitants of heaven, there was none like man. And to prove that point, God brought the animals to the man, and the man named them, but there was not found what the Bible calls a helper fit for him. There was not another like man, and God said, that's not good. So God causes Adam to sleep, and he takes a rib, and he made a woman. That word made in the Hebrew, that literally means to build. God built a woman from the rib of man. Now, presumably, 
God took not just a bone, but the flesh around the rib, and he made Eve. And we see this in Adam's poem when he says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. God took Adam's bone and flesh, and he made woman's bone and flesh. They're from the same substance. Now there is one like man from the inside out. Now, why do I bring all this up? Well, there's a little phrase in verse 22. It's easy to skip over. It says, and brought her to the man. Do you see that? God brought her, the woman, to the man. God presents the woman to the man, and it's almost like the first wedding ceremony. There in the beauty of the garden, untainted by sin, God brings the woman to the man God officiates, you could say, the first wedding. And here's an interesting thought. The first marriage was an arranged marriage. It was. It was arranged by God. Now, you have to stop and think, well, who else is Adam going to marry? But still, it was an arranged marriage. The first marriage. Now, what is marriage? It's a covenant created by God between one man and one woman forever. And I want to break that down. First, marriage is a covenant. What is a covenant? Tim Keller defines covenant this way. A covenant is a binding, it is a public, and it is a legal contract of agreement. A covenant is a binding, public, and legal contract or agreement. In the Old Testament, covenants were made by two parties literally cutting an animal in half, putting the pieces on the ground, and then walking between the pieces. And what they were saying when they did that was, if I don't fulfill my end of the covenant, may I be like this cut-up animal. That would make for a very interesting wedding ceremony. If I asked a couple if they wanted to do that, they'd probably opt for the unity candle instead, but still. The point is, God views a covenant seriously. God views a covenant seriously. It's binding, public, and a legal contract. When you get married, you enter into a covenant with a person. Now, I know how some of you think, and you might stop and think, well, wait a minute, how was Adam and Eve's covenant public? There was no one else. Well, don't forget there was the Trinity that viewed, that, that observed the first wedding. So in that sense, it was public. Now, this idea of covenant, it really flies in the face of what the Word tells us. The world does recognize that marriage is a legal contract, absolutely. It does recognize that marriage unifies a couple, but you see, it rarely acts on that. The world often refers to a marriage as, or a wedding rather, as a, a celebration of love, and if it doesn't work out, it's no biggie. But that's not a contract. That's not binding. Marriage is, let me clarify, marriage is a celebration of love. A wedding is a celebration of love. When you go to a wedding, you should sense the celebration of the couple's love for each other, but it can't be just that. Marriage cannot be merely a celebration. It must be a covenant. Because here's the thing, and if you've been married for any length of time, you know this. The feelings of love come and go. You know that. They are strong one day and absent the next. Why? Because our feelings are fickle. They are affected by a heart that's contaminated with sin. And because our hearts seek to serve self, our feelings go up and down. You can't base your marriage on feelings of love. 
And by the way, let me just add here that the understanding of love that we understand it today, that's opposite from the way the Bible defines love. Did you know that? We base love on our inner feelings. The Bible bases love on an outer commitment. Now, here's how this goes in our day. A couple meets. They are attracted to each other. There are strong feelings. There's chemistry between them. And they get to know each other. And there's common interests and maybe even common life goals. And they decide to get married. It's love. And that's what the world says. Falling in love. As if you had no choice. As if you fell in a pit. You just fell into it. Couldn't avoid it. And if you watched any romantic movie, you know that. That's the way it's portrayed. Their eyes meet across a crowded room and suddenly they're the only two and they're hooked. My friends, that's not love. That's attraction. Biblical love is a commitment. And the greatest example of this is God himself. God made a love covenant with the nation of Israel to be their God. Why? Because Israel was so attractive? Because Israel was a strong and healthy nation? Because God was, would gain something from that relationship? Not at all. Israel was weak, poor, unhealthy, pathetically dependent. And God said, you're mine. That's love. Love is not what can this person do for me. Love is what can I do for this person. Regardless of how they look, regardless of their background, regardless of whether or not they have anything to offer, love is what can I do for this person. And all of that to clarify and get back to this idea that marriage is a covenant created by God. Did you notice that? Marriage is created by God. Marriage is not a man idea. It didn't happen when a bunch of Neanderthals sat around and thought, hey, let's make this thing where one man and one woman stick together forever. Man would never think of something like that. Marriage is God's idea. Marriage was created by God, and it is a gift. If you're married, your spouse is a gift. I got a couple of verses for that. Proverbs 18.22 reads, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 19.14 reads, A prudent wife is from the Lord. Your spouse, if you're married, is a gift from God. Marriage is a covenant created by God between one man and one woman forever. Now, I want to briefly deal with this, one man and one woman, because in our day, marriage is under attack, and you know this. Marriage is under attack. Same-sex marriage is an issue, and my friends, it's not going away. God's view of marriage is between one man and one woman. It was never meant to be between one man and one man and one woman or one woman. It was never meant to be that. I was watching... This was several years ago. I was watching a street interview where the interviewer was going around and asking people if same-sex marriage should be acceptable. And I'll never forget, there was a guy on there. He got on and he said this. He said, no way. He said, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. <laughs> and I love that. And it's true. And notice, it's between one man and one woman. That's what we call being monogamous, Marriage is between one man and one woman, not many men, not many women. Polygamy is not something that God had intended. It's between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And bear in mind, when God brought Eve to Adam, they lived in a perfect world where neither died. 
So do you realize that marriage was meant to last for eternity? Adam and Eve should have gone on being married for all of eternity. If they had not sinned, Adam and Eve would be alive today, still married, and we'd be celebrating their 6,000th or whatever wedding anniversary. The point is, it's meant to last a lifetime. Marriage ends, in our day and age, marriage ends when one spouse dies. That's what marriage is. So what do we get from all of that? Simply this. Get on board with God's plan for marriage. It's his institution. It's a covenant he made for one man and one woman for life. Get on board with that. If you're married and you've never really considered the seriousness of this covenant, then I I urge you to repent of that before God and renew your mind and heart, your covenant, and renew in your mind and your heart, your covenant to your spouse. Take this as seriously as God takes it. And if you're single, young or old, if you're single, set your mind on this view of marriage, on God's view of marriage. Don't let the world sway you to any other idea about marriage. Embrace God's view on this wonderful, awesome, incredible relationship. Even if you don't have plans to marry, get this view in your heart. Set yourself on this view. Why? First, because it's right. It's God's way, and if we're going to be men and women of the Lord, we should do and think God's way. And second, if your heart and mind are set on God's way for marriage, then even if you don't get married, then you have, even if you don't ever have the experience of marriage, what you do have is a biblical basis for marriage. And my friends, I'm here to tell you, if you have that, you have a lot more than many married people. Get on board with God's plan for marriage. So that's point number one. What is marriage? Here's point number two. Why do we marry? Why do we marry? Here's your point. Biblically, we marry because marriage is God's purifying agent meant to sanctify us. Biblically, we marry because marriage is God's purifying agent meant to sanctify us. Now, that doesn't sound very romantic. And the truth is, That's not the only reason to get married. There are many reasons, even good, solid, biblical reasons to get married. Loving someone and wanting to spend your life with them is a good reason to get married, yes. But I want to point out some things from our specific scripture verses, which is why I have worded this point the way I have. So back to Genesis 2.18, first of all, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So we see in Genesis 2 that that part of the reason God created marriage was to fix a problem. Problem. It's not good that man's alone. alone. Solution, marriage. Like I told you, it wasn't that Adam was lonely, but that he lacked another like him. He didn't have a partner. And the text reads, I will make a helper fit for him. Now, I want to unpack that. I will make a helper fit for him. That word helper in the Hebrew, it's ezer. And it does mean help or assistance, but it's not meant to communicate subservient kind of help. It's not meant to communicate some, some lowly little assistant type of help. That word is there is actually used for God at times. In Deuteronomy 33, 26, it reads like this. There is none like God, O Jeshuan, who rides through the heavens to your help, Ezer. 
through the skies of his majesty. It's a strong helper. Eve was meant to be a strong helper. And one way that we can understand this is think of the word compliment. Husbands and wives should compliment each other. Think of it this way. The husband and wife should be standing shoulder to shoulder as they travel down the path of life together. Their eyes are fixed on a goal. Healthy marriage, raising a family, doing ministry together, whatever it is, their eyes are fixed on that goal and they're walking shoulder to shoulder down the road of life together, side by side, complimenting one each other, helping each other as they do life together. And I bring that up because that's important for our sanctification. The way we view our marriage is vital for our sanctification. Having a spouse, having a helper that's fit for us works itself into our sanctification. I'm jumping now to Ephesians 5, and that's what elaborates on this idea. It says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church in himself, to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Why do we get married? Or better said, what does God have marriage? Why does God have marriage in people's lives? Because marriage purifies. That's one of the things that marriage does. It purifies. You know, one, one thing that a married person will tell you is this. Marriage is hard. Marriage is very hard. Marriage is very, very hard. And do you know why? There's many reasons why, but marriage is one of God's purifying agents, and that's one thing that makes it hard. See, here's the truth. As a single person, you can get away with a lot. Even in your friendships, even in your family, you can get away with a lot. You can kind of hide your selfishness. You can kind of hide it to an extent. You can kind of ignore your family and friends when they try to point out things to you in your life. You can kind of ignore them, and if they annoy you enough, you just leave. You're not in a covenant with them. But you see, you can't do that in marriage, or at least you can't do that easily. You might be able to hide for a time, but in marriage, your sinfulness will come out. God has created it to be that way. Your selfishness, your pride, your sin cannot remain hidden in a marriage. And the passage in Ephesians reveals that as Christ cleanses the church, marriage cleanses each other. It's not fun. Marriage is a lot of fun, but this part is not fun. Marriage reveals the sinful side of you. God uses your spouse to point out those areas that need to change, and that's not fun. You can think of it this way. Marriage is like cleaning out a fresh wound. It hurts, but it's necessary. We have to get the dirt, we have to get the grime out, or the wound can't heal properly. Your marriage is the purifying agent to clean out and help heal you, and you can choose to let it do that, or you can resist God's purifying agent and wreck your marriage. So if you've got an issue with lying, just an example, if you've got an issue with lying and you've been able to kind of get away with that for most of your life and then you enter into a marriage, that 
marriage will expose you and your lies, and it will be painful. And you will be forced to make a choice that I'm either going to let God purify me in this or I'm going to keep fighting it, hurt my spouse, and damage my relationship with my spouse. The question then becomes, are you going to let your marriage be God's sanctifying, purifying work in your life or are you going to resist and damage your marriage? Now, if you're single, you might be thinking, well, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not married, but let me just say this. If you tell that to yourself, listen to me, let God's words sink in. If God has marriage in your future, single people, if God has marriage in your future, then you can enter into that marriage with a little more heads up. You can enter into that marriage knowing this is going to be wonderful but painful. You can enter in realizing this is going to purify me. You'll be better prepared for marriage if you walk into it with that outlook. And then one day, many years from then, you'll be able to look back and you'll be able to see over the years how God has scrubbed away the dirt and the grime from you and made you more into his image through your marriage. And if you're not married, and marriage is not in your future, then you need to know that you don't have to be married in order for God to purify you. You do need to open yourself up to others. You need people in your life who can see the dirt and the grime and point these things out to you, and you need to be submissive to that. And small groups are a great place to develop those relationships. It's harder in those relationships because you're not in a covenant relationship with those people, but if you allow them to build into your life and point these things out, God can use them for your purity. God can use them for your sanctification. So I challenge you. I challenge you to deepen those relationships. Last point. We've looked at what marriage is, why we get married. Finally, how do we do marriage? How do we do this thing called marriage in a biblical way? Here's the point. We do marriage by embracing the model for marriage and embracing our roles in marriage. Our model for marriage and embracing our roles for marriage. I'm going back to Ephesians. I'm going to read the whole passage again. It says this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. My friends, if we did that, we'd have great marriages. In this passage, what we have is a not. K-N-O-T. 
If you were reading, perhaps you picked up on this. Paul is comparing human marriage to the marriage of Christ and the church, his bride. And this concept is so knotted together in this passage that you can't separate them, and that's part of the point. The marriage of Christ and the church is the model for us to follow. When I say embrace the model, that's what I'm talking about. The model set before us in Christ and his church, that's the model that we have for our marriage. So it looks like this. When Paul says in verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the church, as Christ, head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. What it's saying there is that's the model for the wife. The wife is to emulate the church as the church submits to Christ. So the wife submits to her husband. The wife is supposed to relate to her husband as the church relates to Christ. That's the model. And this idea of the church being Christ's bride is just woven through this passage. And we saw earlier how Christ purifies the church and that is reflected in the marriage relationships as husbands and wives purify each other. But the model doesn't stop there. The passage says of husbands in verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Again, the model is Christ and the church. The husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. As Jesus relates to the church, so the husband relates to his wife. That's the model that we are given for marriage. And what does this do for us? It gives us a clearer picture of our roles. I said embrace the model and embrace your role. What are the roles within marriage? I'm going to summarize those roles in one sentence here. Wives, submit to your husbands in everything. Husbands, lead your wives lovingly and sacrificially. What are the roles? Wives, submit to your husbands in everything. Husbands, lead and love, lead your wives lovingly and sacrificially. Those are our roles. And I want to look at these individually. First, the wives. I'm going to go back to the text which says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now I know there's a lot of controversy over these verses. I know the world today would say that's misogynistic. But I think the reason there's a lot of controversy is because people don't understand what's being said here. They believe the wife should be a doormat, and that's not what Paul's saying. If the wife is submitting to her husband as the church submits to Christ, then she should not feel caged or subdued or stifled. She should feel joy and freedom and delight. John Piper says of this passage, Christ wants the submission of the church to be free and joyful with a full understanding of who he is and what he stands for and why he is doing what he's doing. Christ does not want slavish obedience or joyless compliance or mindless submissiveness from the church. He wants his church to be full of intelligence and understanding and wisdom and joy and freedom when she follows him. See, what we see in Ephesians 5 is this. The same way in which the church is supposed to submit to Christ is to be the same way in which the wife is to submit to her husband. Not as a drudgery, but as a delight. Wives, submit to your husbands. Let me challenge you in that. 
He does have the final word given to him by the authority of God's word. The only time that it is unacceptable to submit to your husband is if he is asking you to sin. Your responsibility then is to the Lord. This does not mean a wife can't have her own ideas. It does not mean that she can't express her thoughts and opinions. It does not mean that she can't lay out reasons for why she thinks something should be done a certain way or that they should make this decision or that decision. She should feel free to express her thoughts and opinions on any matter. The wife should feel free to share wise guidance even with her husband. If she believes her husband is considering something unwise, she should voice that. She should be free to express an argument for why she thinks something is foolish. However, in the end, she is to submit to her husband. That's what God expects. That's the role of the wife. She's the helper. Now, the role of the husband is to lead his wife lovingly and sacrificially. The text says, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Remember what I said about love a few minutes ago? It's a commitment. Be committed to your wives. How do we do that? Paul tells us, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's sacrificial. The way a husband loves his wife, the way a husband leads his wife is, like Christ, is how Christ loves and leads the church, sacrificing himself for her. This means, men, it means putting your needs your wants, your desires, your goals on the back burner. And every time your wife comes to you with a problem in the home, every time she asks for a favor, every time she shares a desire of her heart, that is an opportunity for you to lovingly lead her by sacrificing your desire to tune out or to turn to a hobby or to flip on the TV. Instead, lovingly lead her by listening to her. And if necessary, providing wise, God-honoring guidance. Let me give you a practical example. I come home from work. I'm tired. It's been a long day. I can smell dinner. I'm hungry. What do I want? My slippers, the couch, and food. But my wife comes to me and tells me there's been an issue with one of the children. It needs to be addressed. Now, I've got one of two responses. I could sigh in frustration and snap at her as if it's her fault. Or I could take a deep breath 
put my desires on the back burner and lovingly deal with the situation by listening to her and responding accordingly. Many other examples I could give. All marriages are different in how they work. But that's just one. Let's ask this question. How exactly do we do this? How exactly do we embrace our roles as husbands and wives? Paul tells us right there in Ephesians 5 by quoting Genesis 2. Did you recognize that? He quoted Genesis 2 in verse 31 of chapter 5. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. By the way, that's practically word for word. Genesis 2, 18, or just, I'm sorry, Genesis 2, 24, and Ephesians 5, 31. The way to embrace our roles as husbands and wives is to leave, cleave, and become one. We leave, cleave, and become one. That's how we embrace our role. And this is real practical. First of all, let me just share these real quick. We have to leave. That is, we have to leave home. It is the destiny of children to eventually leave the home. They must go out into the world. They must build their own life. They must build their own family. And it's the job of the parents to prepare the children from this. And we'll talk more about that next week. But just for now, we have to leave. Adults, have you left? You may have left physically. Have you left emotionally? Are you still looking for validation from your father? Are you still angry with your parents for something that happened years ago? Are you following in the sinful patterns of your parents? If so, you haven't left. And this is hard. Believe me, I know this is hard. Up until the time you get married, your relationship with your parents is the most formative. And even now... You may have habits and traits that you inherited from your parents, and that's not always bad. That can be very good things. But if you're letting the sins of your parents continue to affect you today, you haven't left. And there's a lot in that. Believe me, I know this is something that you may need to work through with the Lord, to work through with your spouse, but let me challenge you to ask yourself, how have I not left We have to leave. Secondly, we have to cleave. What does it mean? And I've already covered much of this when I talked about the roles of husbands and wives. To cleave to your spouse is to embrace your role as husband and wife. Husbands, when you are lovingly and sacrificially leading your wives, you're cleaving to her. And wives, when you're submitting to your husband, you're cleaving to him. Cleaving is the creating of a new family unit. You should have a family unit that is yours. Don't try to recreate your mom and dad. Don't try to cut and paste your childhood home on your marriage. Create your own family unit. Doesn't mean you can't bring in traditions and things from your family, but create your own family unit with its own culture, with its own traditions, and its own way of operation. And I know there's a whole sermon in that, but suffice it to say, cleave. Lastly, become one. Leave, cleave, and become one. This means, like I said earlier, that you do life together. You are no longer one person making decisions for yourself. You are two people living side by side. My wife Heather and I, we we enjoy Rob and Amy Reno. If you don't know them, they're Christian speakers and authors. They have a podcast that's called Family Vision. Check that out, Family Vision. It's good stuff. 
They wrote a book called Visionary Marriage. And Rob and Amy Reno, they write this. When you get married, you are exchanging an individual life for a together life. Everything changes. Friendships change. Personal relationships with people of the opposite sex dramatically diminish. Hobbies increasingly shift to the margin of your schedule. If a person doesn't want these things to happen, they shouldn't get married. Doing life together, becoming one. Let your marriage take the two and mold them into one life. Do it together. So I have just one question for you in all this. What is keeping you from leaving, cleaving, and becoming one? Chances are, it's you, both of you. There's something about both of you that's prohibiting this in some area. Maybe you have a great marriage, but there's this area, that area that's still a struggle. What is it? It's you. It's both of you. Do you know what the enemy of marriage is? Do you know? It's selfishness. It's having to have things my way. That's the enemy of marriage. All other problems stem from selfishness. After all, if love is a commitment to the other person, then selfishness is just the opposite. Love is that's commitment to self. What is keeping you from leaving and cleaving and becoming one? Now, I have just covered a lot. And you might be feeling overwhelmed. I'll be honest, I'm feeling overwhelmed by all of this. So let me ask, where do we find our strength to do this? Where do I find my strength to be a good spouse? Where do we find our model for doing marriage right? We find it in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, both the husband and the wife find the perfect model, the perfect inspiration, the perfect strength to be a good spouse. After all, Jesus was completely submissive to the Father. Even in the garden, when he sweat drops of blood, dreading what was to come, he still said, your will be done. And at the same time, Jesus was such a strong and loving leader that poured into his disciples over and over and over again, even when they didn't get it. And when all humanity cursed and beat and betrayed and killed him, he lovingly gave it away. Here's the truth. I said earlier marriage is hard. That's actually a lie. It's not hard. It's impossible. You can't do it. I can't do it. At best, without Christ, we're tolerable roommates. But that's not what God wants for your marriage. He wants you to be insanely in love with your spouse. Did you know there's a part in, in Proverbs that says to be intoxicated with the wife of your youth? And it goes both ways. And the only way to do that, the only way to be insanely in love with your spouse is to be insanely in love with your Savior. You can't promise to be better. You can't change the awful ingrained habits. You can't get your mind fully off yourself and on your spouse. You can't wholly leave, cleave, and become one unless you first delight in the Lord. It's only in Him that we find the ability to do this thing called marriage. So where do we start? 
Let's start right here, right now, in prayer. I'm going to call the worship team. Come on up as we close. If we're going to be honest, every single one of us has messed up as husbands or wives. I have messed up. So let's start here. Let's start fresh in 2024. I want to do this. I want to lead you through prayer. I want to lead you through a prayer of repentance and renewal. The worship team is, is going to play softly, and as they play, I want you to encourage, I want to encourage you to pray in your heart. I want to encourage the husbands in this room to pray to lovingly and sacrificially lead their wives. I want the wives to pray that they submit to their husbands. I want the singles in this room to pray that God uses his word, uses this message to help prepare them for marriage. Or if marriage is not in your future, pray that God shows you how you can grow from this marriage. Let's pray for strong marriages. Church, let 2024 be a year that your marriage better reflects the gospel than all the previous years, be they many or few. And let's start with repentance. So take a moment, my brothers, my sisters, take a moment, confess your sins and failures to God as husbands or wives or simply as a disciple of Christ. Take a moment now. Let's pause and pray. Now do this. Remind yourself that Jesus took your sin on that cross. He separated your sin as far from you as the east is from the west. It is no more. Start fresh today. Remind yourself that Christ gave you his righteousness. Though you fail, he never does. And that perfect life is yours. Take a moment now. Praise him for his righteousness and ask him to renew your heart for your marriage. Do that now. Father God, we need you. We can't do anything apart from you. We can't do this thing called marriage apart from you, apart from your enabling power. Father, forgive us for failing. Forgive me. Forgive us for the hurt and the pain that we've caused in our marriages and in our relationships. And help us, Father. Help us to turn to you for the power we need to love our spouses, to love others like you love them. Lord, may this day mark a change in our marriages and our relationships. Help us grow. Help us change. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.